Um, So we're going to continue with Article 5, God's Purpose of Grace and the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to dive right in. So let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for being a God of tremendous mercy to us, that you have forgiven us of our sin for all those who call on you, Lord, that you have regenerated us, that you justify us, that you sanctify us, and that you will one day glorify us in your presence. As we continue to think about these wonderful truths in your word, would you please sharpen our minds, help us to think clearly and biblically in these things so that we might live more faithfully for you as your followers. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, we're going to start at the beginning of the article. uh, Recap, last week we just looked at this word election because kind of following along in this category, it's a very emotionally charged word sometimes. So we just ask the question, what does the Bible say about this word? How does the Bible use it? And to give you a brief recap, these are the five kind of concluding observations about this word. And then uh, we'll move on kind of the next section here. It was um, in the scriptures, the elect are those who either have been or will be saved. They are those who are chosen by God. They are those who are known by God and recorded since before creation. Um, It includes individuals and groups, and then it includes people and angels. So kind of some general observations. Um, And at the end of the day, we said that our goal is to try to speak as biblically as possible about these things. That means sometimes we're not going to know how all the dots connect, and that's okay. We can still affirm what the scriptures teach and then learn to agree to disagree with one another on how we connect those dots. So this week, what I want to do is continue looking at this first line. It's the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. So this week, what we're going to add on to this doctrine is its purpose and how it manifests itself. Okay, We'll look at purpose in just a moment. This, um, this phrase here, the gracious purpose of God, that's the purpose. We'll come back to that. But I want to look here at its manifestation. Regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. Put simply, this is salvation. H- how do we see these things? What's the fruit, the manifestation of this? It looks like salvation. God regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. And he does this according to this doctrine. So moving on from that, we come to this second section here. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. Now, last week was a heavy emphasis on that word election, God's role in this doctrine, God's involvement. This week, as we move to this second sentence, we almost see the other side of the coin, the human element of election. We might be tempted to conclude that election rules out any human decision-making or free will, but the Baptist faith and message right here confirms it is consistent with the free agency of man. They are consistent with one another. So election, the way that we hold it, does not negate man's moral agency or vice versa. Man's moral agency doesn't mean that God hasn't predetermined or elected or however you want to define these things. So again, how those connect, we don't always fully comprehend, but we can at least affirm that the scriptures teach them. So we see another uh, comment here regarding manifestation. It says um, that it 
It comprehends all the means in connection with the end. This phrase refers to those things that God uses to bring about his purposes. For instance, let's say I've got a baseball. I want it to travel from one end of the field all the way to the other. Well, I have a few different ways of doing that. What are some ways to make this baseball travel from one side of the field to the other? You can hit it with the bat, okay? Throw it. Kick it. That would hurt, but yeah, you could kick it. You could, yeah. What other? Any other means? Throw it. Throw it, yes. You can trick your sibling into taking it over there for you. There's all kinds of means. All of those are different ways of accomplishing a task. That's what a means is, okay? So the means in connection with the end of election refers to those things that God uses to bring his plan about, okay? At the very bottom of your sheet on the application or on the back side, I'm going to go ahead and give you these three means in connection with the end, and then we'll go back and, and kind of continue through. So here's three means. These are all pretty vague categories. I'm not going to say this is exhaustive, but it's pretty exhaustive. Three means in connection with the end. Number one is human action. God uses human action to accomplish his purposes. This is the things that we do, the things that we say, um, decisions that we make. All of these are part of God's purposes coming to completion. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4, I think we've maybe read this together at some point here. But um, this will be helpful for us. Acts chapter 4, 27 through 28. Acts chapter 4, 27 through 28. So Peter and John have spoken before this council. They're telling them, speak no longer about the name of Jesus. They release them. And so they go to their friends and report what happened in verse 23. And they all start praising the Lord together. And they address the Lord this way, Sovereign Lord, in verse 24, who made the heavens and the earth, everything in it. And then down here in verse 27, it says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we see here that Herod and Pilate were carrying out God's predestined plan. But if you think back to the Gospels and you think about what Pilate was suffering, his wife was having these dreams and she was telling him, be careful with this man. Be careful what you do. We don't see Pilate kind of go into this trance of automated doing whatever God has pre-programmed. We see him struggling through decisions. All of this exists consistently with God's purposes. This is human action, making decisions, deciding to do things, thinking through. That's the first one. The second means that God uses. Okay, but in that, yeah. he didn't really have a choice. Why do you say that? Because he came to him. He had to choose to let Jesus die. Yes, he had to choose. Well, I mean, I say that, but just like Judas. I mean, Judas was just like somebody had to do it. Just like Judas what? Somebody had to do it. But there were 11 others that could. Well, yeah, that's true. But Pilate was only one. Uh Uh-huh. 
I, I'm, I'm missing your point on it. There's what? tension in that. Yes. There's tension in this concept. Yes. It's like you could say, well, did he really have a choice then? If God knew already that it's going to happen. That's right. Or, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's like, but it's just the same thing with us. It's like, just because God knows it's going to happen doesn't mean we don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Because he knows everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's the whole tension that we're holding up here. And that's what the Baptist faith and message is affirming. Uh, God's here. Uh, election is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. So there are certain means that God uses to bring it about. How did God bring about the crucifixion? Well, there was this man, Pilate, who had to make a decision. That's one of the means. Yes, you're saying was destined to make the decision. I'm saying he still made a decision. So that human decision was the means that God used to bring it about. Does that mean that it's not genuine? No, that means it's not genuine. And, and there's some debate on, and this is where some of the disagreement comes from, is okay, well, to what degree can God have control over everything, but then we still make decisions? If you can figure that out, you need to teach seminary. Because <laughs> it's, it, it's difficult. This is not teaching something... <laughs> teaching days are over. This is not something that's easy to wrap our minds around. This is why we have to, at the end of the day, just conclude, I don't know how to connect all the dots, but I can affirm what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we make genuine decisions, that we're accountable moral agents, and Scripture teaches God's in control of everything. How do we fit that together? That's a wonderful question. (laughs) I'm going to experience the benefits of both of those beliefs, and maybe somewhere along the way, that will start to click together. But I think for the most part, some of these things, we're going to have to wait till we get to heaven, and then we'll suddenly realize, oh, Lord, I see now like I didn't see before. Well, then that's all about what faith is about. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So the means that, that they're talking about here, um, three specific means for you. Number one is human action. You could say human agency if you want to. Um, here's the second one. Creation design. Creation design. Easy example I'll give you here is gravity. It's God's will for us all to walk on the earth. Now, how does he do that? Does he take his hand and hold us to the ground? No, he doesn't. He made gravity. So that's a means that God uses to bring about his purposes. This can go, that's an easy example. A more complex example would be how he designed animals, how he designed the ground, rocks, metal. All of these things are part of God's purposes, how he designed wood to function and hold up. You think about Jesus being crucified. Well, we automatically think the human element in decision-making and how did God orchestrate that? But then now just think about the physical structure of a cross and nails and the way that our bodies stay alive and blood is pumping and flowing and there's bones and muscle. All of those things are a means that God uses to bring about his purposes. So creation design is number two. And then number three is prayer. Prayer. Sometimes when we start to think about these things, we wonder, well, then why should we pray at all? Because this is one of the ways that God has chosen to interact with us. He does not want to move apart from our prayers. So he tells us to pray and he actually responds to our prayers he does things that, we, that he would not do if we did not pray those things. So prayer is a means of um, the end of election here that we're talking about.
So it's consistent with the free agency of man, and it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. Next, it is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So we've looked at the manifestation. How do we see this coming about? Now we're kind of seeing the purpose unpacked. Earlier we saw this phrase, the gracious purpose of God. Here we see that spelled out a little more fully. It exalts God in salvation and it humbles us in salvation. So as we think about this doctrine, we lose room for boasting. It excludes it excludes boasting and promotes humility. Rather, it exalts God's sovereign goodness, his infinite wisdom, his holiness, and his unchangeable nature. Ultimately, what this means is we're saved because God is good, wise, holy, and unchangeable, not because of anything within us, so we can't boast. Um, A good passage here that the Baptist faith and message includes is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I will read through that, that whole section there for us. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And keep your Bibles there because we'll go to Ephesians again here in just a moment. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Here's what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the tremendously obvious theme here is God's mercy and God's grace. Verse four, this famous, but God being rich in mercy. Verse eight, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but is the gift of God. So in salvation, we undergo this most glorious change And I don't want to elaborate too much here other than to say that if something is more glorious, oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I'll see what I did here. I included a section from last week's notes right in the middle of my statement there. (laughs) That's awesome. Just a good reminder that ain't nobody perfect, not even me. I'll have to leave that in for the website. Um, So Ephesians 2.10, God's purpose and grace, it exalts him in salvation and it humbles us in salvation. Let's move on to the next section. All true believers endure to the end. 
Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. They shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So now we're entering into the doctrine called perseverance of the saints. In 1925, they separated these into two different articles. Here in uh, 63 and 2000, they put it together. So this doctrine is historically called the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. Some people have called it once saved, always saved. I personally do not like that. Some people have called it the eternal security of the believer. I think I probably prefer that over the other two. Each of these has their cons. Anytime you try to simplify something complex into something chewable, into some kind of bite-sized nugget, you almost always lose something important and and attempt to lead towards misunderstanding. So each of these kind of has their cons, but here's kind of what it teaches. Regardless of what you call it, the key word is, will never fall away from the state of grace, shall persevere to the end, shall be kept by the power of God. So this doctrine here that we're looking at implies finality. There is no such thing if we are chosen in some sense of being unchosen, of being saved and then being unsaved. It it doesn't work like that. If you can be unsaved, then you weren't really saved to begin with, is the way that the doctrine expresses itself. I think that's what it means by true believers. That's right. That's correct. And we're going to get to that in a second is... Well, what about those people that say that they believe, but then they leave the faith? What about these megachurch pastors that deny the faith and they're no longer Christians anymore? I would say, and Baptists historically would say, that person was never a true believer. Now, the downside to that is we shouldn't have to call them true believers. It should just be believer. But unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world, I think we almost have to use something like that to clarify. Or another example that I get is saving faith. Well, faith is faith, but saving faith is a way of basically saying true believer, sort of. So yeah, you're right. Um, Ephesians, keep it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. And uh, here we see this idea come up, and then we'll turn to John chapter 10. So Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Uh, In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So now if you'll turn to John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus has been playing on this analogy of the shepherd and the door to the sheep. And then in John 10, 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So this word from Ephesians, guarantee, 
This word from John, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. One final example that I want to give you is 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. We won't turn there to read that. But in 1 John 2, 19, if you want to go look at it later, there are some who departed from the believers. And it says that they were never of us, for if they were of us, they wouldn't have departed from us. So this idea that uh, you can look like you are a believer, but then not really be, and we'll come back to that here in just a moment. Um, so here's the final section here. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. So one error is assuming that eternal security or perseverance of the saints means that we can sin and not be worried about losing our salvation. And, and I've, I've heard this a lot, unfortunately, articulated. Well, I gave my life to Christ a long time ago, so I'm good. And really what that statement is, is just a way to avoid conviction, to avoid accountability. Don't talk to me about my sin because I'm good. I don't need to hear it. And what this does is it keeps people who are not true believers, genuine believers, from hearing that they're, they may not be true believers or genuine believers. It creates a barrier and an obstacle. So this affirms that, yes, believers will sin, but they will also repent. They will make it through to the end. Now, their repentance does not always come immediately. It is possible to spend a significant amount of time in sin without repenting. Now, I don't want to give a blanket statement on that. Well, Garrett, how long? What if someone doesn't repent for a year? You know, at this point, like, when are we going to draw the line and say, oh, that person's not a believer? We're not really the judge. <laughs> well, I can't decide that. Well, Garrett, is it possible for someone to live in sin for 20 years before they repent and they were really a believer the whole time? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that question. But what I do know is that believers, just because they are saved, doesn't mean that they won't fall into sin through neglect or temptation. It doesn't mean that they won't have to suffer some of these temporal judgments because of these things. And I also know that just because believers sin doesn't mean that we should just kind of throw our hands up whenever we sin and say, well, it's just natural. There should be a prick of the conscience where we ask, okay, what does this say about where I really stand with the Lord? Especially if there's a continued uh, attitude of not repenting from your sin. We should ask questions about these things. We don't want to be the one who is a falsely assured non-believer. That we're assured of a salvation we don't possess. Um, so, while it's true that we can't lose our salvation, we can think we are saved when we really aren't. And so this kind of leads to this um, last bit of application for us. I'm going to give you three signs of salvation that accompany perseverance. So yes, we're going to sin. Okay, well then how do I know that I'm not just a falsely assured believer? Here's three signs of salvation that accompany our perseverance till the end. Number one, a present trust in Christ. A present trust in Christ. This seems self-explanatory, but it's important. <laughs> Do you trust Christ right now? If you do not, 
Okay? You need to trust Christ. That's simple. A present trust in Christ. Number two, evidence of a regenerated heart. Evidence of a regenerated heart. And I'm going to give you three evidences here. The uh, acronym for this, I just made up. Don't make fun of me. It's LAD. I don't know if you work on acronyms. I do. Okay. If you're talking to somebody and I want to know, is this a LAD or not? Is this one of my brothers or sisters? As corny as it is, leave me alone. Here it is. LAD. Number one, evidences of a regenerated heart. Number one would be love for God. Love for God. This is not something you can answer for someone. If someone else is struggling with, how do I know if I'm saved? And you're talking with them and you're like, well, do you trust Christ right now? Yes, I do. Okay, well, do you think that God has changed your heart? Well, I don't know. That's the question. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have a love for God? I don't know. Do you think I do? You can't answer that question for them. You can't. Okay? You can answer it for yourself. I have a love for God. I have a tremendous love for God. That's one evidence of a regenerated heart. Love for God. Second is affection. It's holy affections, but I needed the A. So affection. I have an affection for holy things. I have a love for wanting to be holy. The new affections of my heart aren't for, they are increasingly for holy things and not for unholy things. My affections have been changed. So I have a love for God, holy affections. And then the third is desire. There's a new desire for learning and obeying God's word. I can remember calling myself a Christian and having no desire to learn or obey God's word. I can remember what that feels like. It makes me more sure of my salvation now. Some of you maybe don't have that recollection. Maybe you made a decision for Christ at a very early age. And you're wondering, and you've had the same desire as long as you can remember. So you don't see a distinct change between no desire for these things and then suddenly having a desire. Maybe that's where you're at right now. If you have all three of these, a love for God, holy affections, a new desire for learning and obeying God's word, and you currently trust Christ, it is very likely that you are among believers. Here's the third one. Long-term pattern of growth. So present trust in Christ, evidence of a regenerated heart, and then long-term pattern of growth. You cannot underestimate the value of time when it comes to assurance of salvation. And this is one of the reasons that a lot of times if parents come to me and say, hey, I think my child has made a profession. I am not an advocate of just dunking them in the water immediately. And I've had some parents that were conflicting on this. And well, I don't know. I feel like I should. And months later, they came back to me and they said, Garrett, I'm so glad you made me wait. Because we can see now, they just want to make us happy. Our kids want to make us happy. My son, Gabriel, he wants to make me happy. He said, Dad, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And you know what I say? Praise God, son. Let's ask God. Let's ask God for forgiveness. Now, do I really know? if I have no idea. Time is going to tell. The good news is if he is, baptism isn't what's going to save him. He already knows the Lord. 
we want to give that time for Gabriel, just like we did with Kristen. And so time is very helpful here. Long-term pattern of growth. In fact, in the first several centuries after Christ had risen from the grave, Christianity is kind of becoming uh, less persecuted and flipping around, especially with Constantine. So when this happened, a lot of times when someone made a profession of faith, they would not baptize that candidate for up to a year. And they would teach them the basics of the Christian faith. And in that year-long period, they could tell, okay, we see a long-term pattern of growth. We think we should baptize this brother or sister. We believe that they're in the, in the faith. So long-term pattern of growth. Um, time reveals what it's otherwise difficult to see. And I'm going to give you two passages here uh, just to write down uh, if you want. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. 1 Timothy 5, 22 through 25. We studied that on Wednesday nights right after I'd gotten here. It talks about not being hasty and laying on of hands, for there's some things that are not immediately evident. It takes time for it to kind of come to the surface for you to be able to see. The second one, which I will turn and read, is Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Mark 4, 16 and 17. In Mark 4, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. This is Mark's account of the parable. And then starting in verse 10, he's with the 12 and they ask him about the parables. And so Jesus explains this specific parable. And in verse 16, he's talking about the seed that's sown on the rocky ground. So I'm going to go back and read it actually in the parable. Um, In verse 5, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. So now down in verse 16, he says, um, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So time, a long-term pattern of growth, is a sign that, of salvation that accompanies perseverance. This is very difficult, and I think uh, an appropriate thing for us to think heavily upon being in the Bible Belt. Most people here say, I'm a Christian. I would argue most probably are not. Because we grow up in a Christian culture. We all want to please our parents who raised us to be good little Christians. <laughs> I was in that boat. I I went to bed at night reading from a a children's illustrated Bible. We had a little Garfield bookmark that my dad put in there, and I wanted to be the one to take the bookmark out and read the next story and then put it in for the next one for the next night. We grew up with these things. And if you'd ask me, are are you a believer? Yeah, I'm a believer. Yeah, great. Uh, I love the Lord. Wonderful. One of the things that got me is that I was living in sin, and it did not bother me. Now, it bothered me that People might think poorly of me. I had no account for how the Lord thinks about my lifestyle choices. Had no category for that. So I know what that's like. I believe that there are a lot of people that struggle with the same thing, but they're told their whole lives, well, look, you said a prayer, you got baptized, it's going to be okay. Once saved, always saved. I think we need to start leaning away from that and start asking some probing questions. When our friends or family come up and say, look, I'm struggling with this, instead of just comforting them, 
Now, we don't want to go on the other end and say, well, you're probably going to hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're probably not saved. We don't want to do that either, but we want to help them navigate through this. We want to be equipped with, okay, is this person a lad? Do you have a love for God? <laughs> and talk with them about that. Hey, what are some of your holy affections? Does that even make sense to you? No, what does that mean? Be prepared to have that discussion. Do you have a desire to study and to obey God's word? They probably won't be honest with a pastor in church because that's a very formal atmosphere. But you know who they will be honest with? They'll be honest with you. And I know this from student ministry. I would tell students all the time, look, I go to the school and eat lunch and they all act a certain way in front of Pastor Garrett. And then they come to church and they hang out and they all act a certain way in front of Pastor Garrett. But when Pastor Garrett's not there, they're going to be much more open and honest with you. And I would have students come back and just say, Brother Garrett, I just asked this person, like, do you believe in Jesus? And they said, no. But I'm like, well, you told my pastor you were. And they're like, well, I didn't want to tell him I wasn't a Christian. I'm like, okay, well, what happened after that? Like, well, we got to talk about this and we got to talk about this. We got to do all these things that there is so much opportunity here for the gospel. We just have to equip ourselves with thinking biblically about these things and not want to avoid kind of the awkward social, cultural thing of having these conversations. <laughs> there might be people around us that say they are a Christian and they don't know Jesus from anything. So let's have our radars up and be on the lookout and try to have gospel conversations with people. Not always assuming the worst, not always assuming the best, just being real and being honest and having these discussions. So... The purposes of God's grace, that, that is the article. What questions, uh, what questions do you have on this or comments or thoughts? Okay, I know this uh, topic of election and man's choice and, and how are these things compatible and, and how does it comprehend all the means. Uh, if you want some more material on reading through these things, I can provide that for you. Come and talk to me in my office. I'll give you some books to help you with that. Uh, I'll be honest, it, it, it is a mental exercise. It's going to require some deep thinking. Don't think that you're going to come across, or at least I haven't yet, this paragraph in a book that just perfectly paints the picture for you. Um, but if you're ready to start thinking deeply about these things, I have some good resources for you. Just let me know and I can help you out with that. Let me pray and then we'll be done. Lord God, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious, that you are unchangeable, that you are sovereign, that you are infinitely wise. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to love us, your people, that you have sent Jesus to die on the cross, that we might have eternal life with you. Lord, if we do not know you, would you please expose our hearts to us? Expose our lack of love for you, our lack of holy affections, our lack of new desires so that we might turn to you, Lord, and finally, truly be saved. That we might have this moment of regeneration where we are made new, new creatures in Christ. Lord, would you also fill us with boldness? Equip us with the knowledge of your word that we might be ready to have these hard conversations when you open the door for that to happen. We desire to be faithful Lord, so help us to be faithful. Assure us with the knowledge, Lord, that you are in control of all things, that they are not dependent upon us, that we might be motivated to go out and to be obedient to what you have called us to do. 
but also, Lord, help us to live responsibly, to make godly decisions, to think godly things, to do godly things, that we might honor you and bring honor and glory and praise to your name as others look at us from the outside. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ for his honor and glory. Amen.